John's Gospel and John chapter 3. Now, we know that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But we also know that there are certain portions of Scripture that are particularly precious to us, certainly certain portions of Scripture that are particularly powerful in their content and presentation, and certain portions like the one before us now, which are particularly concise in showing to us the gospel message in its simplicity, but showing to us the gospel message in its power. So we're going to be reading the as in the the NIV, which is a paragraph. Uh, It's verses 16 to 21 of John chapter 3. And it begins with verse 16, which is probably the single most famous verse of the Bible. And it was the verse that Martin Luther described as the Bible in miniature. That all the great themes and doctrines of the Bible are contained in this one verse, that from this kernel the whole gospel and the whole truth of the Bible can be drawn out. So John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Amen. Well, as we turn to this text, this paragraph, what I would like to notice with you is the simplicity with which the gospel message is portrayed that we have a clear and a simple message of salvation for us, something that we can understand, something that we can comprehend, and something that we can respond to. One of the news stories this week is how uh, numerically illiterate most people are, that mathematics uh, is a subject that many people don't feel comfortable with. And I'm sure that if I gave you exercises, if I asked you to give me the square root of um, 169 or to do a quadratic equation or to plot a parabola, you might say, well, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I'm not able to do calculus. I can't do geometry. Now, the Bible and the gospel is not complicated. It's not meant to confuse. There are no trick questions. So not only do we have a simple message of salvation for our own benefit, but we have a simple message of salvation to share. You see, you don't need to be a theologian to share the gospel. You don't need to be an expert in New Testament Greek or Old Testament Hebrew. You don't have to have a working knowledge of each of the 66 books of the Bible. But if we understand this morning this paragraph that is before us, 
You and I will understand how it's possible for us to be right with God, but we will also have a commission that we can bring to anyone and everyone to tell them how they can be right with God, how they can be reconciled to God, and how they can live a new and a dramatically transformed life. Now, I was told when I was in Edinburgh that I don't need to keep repeating the fact that I'm from America, that it becomes obvious after a while. So I'm not going to tell you that I'm from America, but what I am going to tell you is that in the 19th century, one of the most famous preachers in America, he was based in the city of Chicago, and his name was D.L. Moody, and his ministry was transformed. It was transformed by this very verse that we are looking at, John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Now, Moody met um, a British preacher, Henry Moorhouse, when he was in Dublin. And Moorhouse said to Moody, I'm coming to America, and when I come to America, I would like to preach in your church. Moody agreed. And not too long afterwards, Moorhouse was in America and was taking Moody's pulpit. Moody was out of the city at the time, and he was telegraphing to his wife, tell me how he's getting on. And she responded, he's a much better preacher than you are. Every night he tells sinners that God loves them. And each night, seven nights in a row, he preached on John 3.16. And afterwards he told Moody, teach them what the Bible says, not your own words, and show people how much God loves them. Show people how much God loves them. That's exactly what we have before us. How much God loves you. How much God cares about you. How much he values you. How important you are in his estimation. We live in an age where self-esteem can be very low. We live in an age where many people are wondering, is life worth living? Is it really worth it? Does anyone know? Does anyone care? Does it matter whether I'm here or whether I'm not? Well, let me tell you that God has an opinion on those questions. God has something to say to you. That you are of infinite value. You are of eternal worth. And he is defining your value in terms of what is most precious to him. So let us look together first at the verse 16, but then the, the whole paragraph that's before us, 16 to 21, really rounds out the argument. Because he's not only telling us here what the gospel is, but we are being told what the gospel does. The power that this simple message has upon the human heart. The power that this simple message has upon the human life. Because if you encounter Jesus in the gospel, if you have a personal and a powerful encounter with Jesus, let me tell you that you will never be the same again. Your heart will change. Your mind will change. Your priorities will change. Your motivation will change. Your eternal destiny will change. But your time here on earth will be changed and transformed. And I can see by the nods that there are people here who are saying to me, yes, you're absolutely right. I know exactly what you are saying. That it is all change. And as Martin Luther said, we have here the Bible in miniature. Because first we have the gospel. 
the good news. Gospel literally means good news. And we have good news for the entire world. For God so loved the world. Now, if you just turn back a few pages, you'll see what the gospel writer John has to say about the world. Uh, John chapter 1, we have in this introduction the basically the, the groundwork that's being laid. Because there's a problem here. There's a problem between God and the world. There's a disconnect. And this disconnect is summed up in first in verse 9. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. So in that those two verses, this word world is written four times. Jesus was coming into the world. Jesus had been, was in the world and made the world, but the world did not recognize him. There's a disconnect here. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus did. This is his power. This is his authority. He came to bring light, and he came to bring life. But the world that he created did not recognize him. His own people didn't receive him. So from the very beginning of John's gospel, we see this conflict between the world and between Jesus. You would have expected the world to embrace Jesus, to welcome him with open arms. Here's our creator. Here is our sustainer. And here is our savior. But quite the opposite. The world didn't welcome him. The world didn't receive him. Why? Because the world is that, that, that uh, well, I was going to say, the, the world is that understanding of life without God. Because the world that Jesus came into was against Jesus, was against God because the world had taken a different path. Instead of following its creator, instead of embracing its savior, the world and its people wanted to do its own thing, its own way, by its own standards. And the world hasn't changed. Dundee is no different than it was when it was founded. Edinburgh is no different we live in a world that is governed by these same principles. I want to do my thing, my way, when I want, how I want, as I want, and you, no one else can tell me to do otherwise. So from the very beginning of John's gospel, we see that there's a conflict between the world and Jesus. And yet John 3.16 commences by telling us, for God so loved the world... So there is good news for this lost world. There is good news for this world that doesn't know Jesus. There's good news for this world that doesn't embrace Jesus. And there's good news for this world that would rather destroy and reject Jesus. And this is where we need to connect with the message of the gospel. Because temperamentally, personality-wise, we have different personalities. There's going to be some people here today who are the glass half-empty. The clouds are, if not on the horizon, they're right above us. There's, there's, ne there's negative people. Well, it's just inhe inevitable. There are some people who are pessimists, but then there's also the glass half full people, and that the sun is soon to break out uh, if we just wait long enough. 
But this is not a question about your temperament or your personality. But this is a statement that God is making about his nature and about his character. And if we have connected with God, we need to connect with his attitude. So you can be a pessimist, but still embrace the gospel. You can be an optimist and still be part of this great plan and purpose. For God so loved the world. You see, a note is sounded here that rings throughout the whole of Scripture and that needs to ring throughout every pulpit and from every Christian that we have good news for a lost world. This gospel, this good news, is sounded at the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's sounded by the very angel who announced the birth of Jesus in Luke. Remember Luke chapter 2. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, his ministry was a ministry of good news. You might think otherwise, but Luke chapter 3 says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. The ministry of Jesus himself was a gospel ministry. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, Mark chapter 1, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This might seem to be repetitious, this might seem to be obvious, but the gospel is good news, therefore it is not bad news. The gospel is glad tidings, therefore it is not sad tidings. And I think we as Christians individually and we as a church collectively have to constantly remind ourselves because we can easily find ourselves negative, critical, and condemning. But how can we be negative, critical, and condemning if our central message, if our keynote that we are sounding is a message of good news, a message of joy, and a message of peace? If we don't get the good news angle of John 3.16, John 3.17 corrects that possible misunderstanding. Well, it's not a possible misunderstanding, it's a complete misunderstanding. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So if you don't glean good news out of John 3.16, John 3.17 speaks to you directly and says, please don't be mistaken. Do not think that the gospel is a message of condemnation because it is a message of salvation. So whatever you say and whatever you do, however you convey the gospel, make sure that you sound this note of hope Make sure that you sound this note of joy. Make sure that you sound this note of peace. And make sure that you convey somehow, some way, that there is good news. Believe me, there is no shortage of bad news today. 
there is no shortage of sad news today. We don't need to look to Syria or the Democratic Republic of Congo. We don't need to look at those areas of the world that are blighted by famine or civil war or disease. We can look on the streets of Dundee. We can look in the streets of Edinburgh. We can look into the homes of people round about us. And we can see an ample supply of sad news, of bad news, of darkness and despair. But let us be committed as Christians not to add to this world's gloom, not to add to this world's sadness, not to increase the message of bad news, but rather to sound a message of hope. Because we have in John 3.16, first, that good news, that God loves this world, this world that didn't recognize his son, this world that didn't receive his son, this world that ultimately would destroy his son, this was the very world and its people that God loved. And not only did he love them with a, it wasn't that he loved them with a grudging affection, but the word that is used here is, is an amplifying word. You know what an amplifier is. Right now my voice is being amplified. That the sound system here takes my voice and makes it louder. That's what this word so does. This word so is an amplifying word. So It's as if the gospel writer wants to say to us, it's not enough to say that God loved the world, but we have to stress that God loved the world so much. We have to amplify this word love. We need to add to this word, word love so that people really see and understand that God does really love this world. He doesn't love an ideal world, which doesn't exist. He doesn't love a perfect world of our dreams, but he loves the real world in which we live, and he loves the real people that inhabit that real world. So if you want to know what God thinks about you, this is what God thinks about you. If you want to know what God thinks about your neighbor, this is what God thinks about your neighbor. And this is what God wants you to think, and you to feel, and you to believe, regarding this world. You need to be tuned in to God's wavelength, to his frequency. You need to be on this page. You need to be part of this great agenda. He loved the world. And how do we know he loved the world? Because of the gift. You see, the, the affection brings an action. You see, and this is where we as Christians have to remind ourselves that if we are agreeing with God, about loving the world. It's not just a love that's here, nor here, but it must be a love that finds expression. It must be a love that finds some type of action because God says it and God shows it. And that's sometimes where our discipleship falls down. We say it, we believe it, we hold these truths to be self-evident, but we somehow find it difficult to put this into practice. But God didn't. Because the gospel of Jesus is a gospel of word and a gospel of action. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave a gift. And the gift was the person of his son, his only son. His one and only son, his only uh, begotten son. This is the measure of the love that God has for you and for me. That's why the word so is essential. That's why this amplification is essential. Because we don't just simply say God loved the world. He so loved the world. 
And how do we know that he loved the world? Because he gave what was most precious to him for us. That there was a great exchange that was made. That the measure with which he loved this world was the measure with which he loved his son. And you think, well, that's, a, that's infinite. And you're absolutely right. That's eternal. And you're absolutely right. That there's no measure, there's no bound to the love that God had for his son. So there can't be a measure or a bound that God had in his love for this world. So the word, the, the, the spoken word, and then the, the action that came along with the word is followed by a promise that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So if we sum up this word by using the word gospel, good news, we also have to sum up this verse by saying this is what grace looks like. Grace, undeserved favor, unmerited goodness. Because there's a, there's a, a, a disproportion here. Because God so loved the world... He gave his only begotten son. So you're thinking, well, this is going to be big. There's something that I've got to do in response here. If God loved me this much, and if God demonstrated his love for me with this measure, then logic would say that I must return that love. I must respond in an appropriate way. Because if that was the message... It wouldn't be a message of good news. It wouldn't be a message of grace. It would be a counsel of despair. Because I can't love in that way, and I can't give in that measure, so therefore, I'm stuck. But the great message here is that God loves us this much, and God gave us this great gift, but what is required of us, and this is the remarkable thing, What's required of you and what's required of me is simply this, that whoever believes, that's it. We have to take God at his word. We have to receive God's gift. That's all that is required, but that is required. All that is required is to believe, but believing is required. God is not saying here, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that everyone will have eternal life. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that there is this world that is the object of his affection, and that this world is so precious to him that he sent what was most precious to him, his only begotten son. But he says there's a response that is required. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being on the telephone with these automated services, and you just want to get some response, you want to get some answer, and you get this automated voice saying, a response is required. They give you all these numbers, push one to do this, push two to do that, and sometimes you don't do anything, and they say, you've got to do something. If you want to take this telephone call a bit further, you've got to push a one, or push a two, or push a three. And if you want to take this further here, you have to do something in response. A response is required, and that response is the response of faith, of trust, of belief. That's all that is required, but that response is absolutely required. That whoever believes, out of this great world, there will be those who believe and those who don't. Those who accept and those who don't. Those who respond with, with, with faith and those who don't. You see, God is saying that without exception, indiscriminately, universally, he has an affection and, and, a, and a love towards this world, 
But the gift, the promise of eternal life is for a subset of that world. It's not for everyone. The love is for everyone. The invitation is for everyone. But the gift of eternal life, by its very definition, again, you don't need to be an expert to understand this, is for those who accept the terms, those who accept the conditions, those who respond accordingly. God has promised. God has given us this unconditional promise. He says, effectively, you've got a choice here. To use the words of the Apostle Paul, he says, you can get what you deserve, or you can get exactly what you don't deserve. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What do you want? Do you want what you deserve? Do you want what you, what you, what you, what you merit? Do you want from God exactly what you deserve by your life and by your actions? Or do you want what you don't deserve? Do you want what you haven't earned? Do you want what, what is not yours by right? Because that's only given by gift. And that's only available through this invitation. There's only one option here, and the option is believing in the Son. Believing in Him. That's why Martin Luther described this as the Bible in miniature. Because we have here the character of God expressed. We have here the person of Jesus presented. And we have here a vivid illustration of the state of man. We can't save ourselves. And we can't fix what is broken. We can't deal with the problems of life. We have to respond to the one who can. You notice here that the gospel is not presented by us to God. We're not saying, God, here's a choice, here's an option, why don't you do this? No. The gospel is God's message of salvation presented to us. God's promise of salvation given to us. God's gift of salvation offered to us. The, 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 God has initiated this plan. God has devised this plan. And God, through his son Jesus, presents us the offer and the invitation of salvation. So if you are not yet a Christian this morning, this is the good news. This is a simple message that brings salvation. And if you are a Christian, this is the good news. And this is a simple message that brings salvation. And this is what they need. Whoever they are. Wherever they are. Whatever they have done. You see, the gospel separates us and them. It's not a separation based on nationality because the church is an international family. It's not a separation that's based on economic or political divisions because the church of Jesus is rich and poor and it covers the whole political spectrum. But there is an us and there is a them. The us are those of us who believe and the them are those of us who don't, those who haven't heard, those who haven't responded. And that's where you come in, you who believe in Jesus, you who have received this gift, you who have accepted the terms and conditions of this promise, then you become an instrument, you become a messenger, you become a channel through which this message goes out. We can't fit all of the West End of Dundee in this building. We can't fit all of the population of Dundee in this building. We can't even fit a small portion of that population. And then if you add all the various communities, all the various towns and villages that are represented here, we can't do it. 
We can't get everybody from those villages here, but God can send you there, whether tomorrow at your place of work, tomorrow at your place of study, tomorrow in, in your neighborhood, tomorrow with your friends. You see, the message of salvation is not difficult for us to understand personally, nor is it difficult for us to present. You don't need a degree. You don't need training. You don't need to be able to answer every question or respond to every challenge. But if you simply make it your mission and your ministry to convey these simple words honestly, genuinely, with affection and with concern, just as D.L. Moody's ministry was transformed by the gospel, John 3.16, your life and your work and your witness for Jesus can be transformed by this simple statement of God's love, of God's gift, and of God's grace. But before we leave this paragraph, we have to continue by noticing that there is a contrast. There's a stark contrast. Because when this invitation is presented... It separates the us and the them. The us, those who have received and therefore will not perish but have eternal life. Those in verse 17 who are not condemned but are saved. But spare a moment now to consider the opposite. Consider the contrast here. Consider the whoever does not believe. Because John 3.16, the logic is inescapable that whoever does not believe in him shall perish. Or John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So there are those who are condemned and those who are saved. There are those who will not perish and those who will perish. Now the question is, Christian, do you care? Are you concerned for those today who are in the category of perishing and condemned. Do you care about them? Do you care about their eternal destiny? Do you care that without Jesus, they are lost and will not be found? They are perish, they will perish and will not be saved. They can't fix the problem. There's no other option. Uh, the message of salvation is not like one spoke on a wheel where you just follow whatever path gets you to the center. That might be the message of the interfaith movement today, that just be genuine. If you're a Muslim, be a genuine Muslim. If you're a Buddhist, be a genuine Buddhist. If, if you're a humanist, be a genuine humanist. And by that integrity of life, you will somehow make your way to the center. That's an interesting idea, but it's not the gospel, and it's not the Bible. There is one path from where we are to where God is. There is one person who can take us from here to there. That path is the gospel, and that person is Jesus. Now, if they don't know that, they won't make it. If they don't believe that, they won't get there. So the question is, for us who believe, what do we think about them? Are we content to say, well, they're going to get what they deserve? Well, we didn't respond that way to the gospel, did we? We weren't content to get what we deserved. We preferred to get what we didn't deserve. So we can't stand in judgment over them and say, well, they aren't interested. Maybe they're not interested because they've never been told. They don't care. Well, maybe they, they don't care because nobody has shown them care or affection or, or presented the gospel in a clear or coherent way with word and with action. So we have the saved and we have the damned. 
Or in John's first letter, he presents it in terms of the haves and the have-nots. We often think that economically, don't we? There are people who have, who have homes and people who don't have homes. There are people who have jobs and there are people who don't have jobs. There are people who have money in the bank and there are people who don't have money in the bank. They just have overdrafts. But listen to John in his first letter. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. The haves, you have the Son, you have life. The have-nots, you don't have the Son, and you don't have life. Now you might think, well, we've got, we've got this idea. But do we? If, if you're not a Christian this morning, do you really have this idea that the haves and the have-nots mean that you have life now and life forever because of Jesus, or you don't have real life now and you don't have eternal life forever because you don't have Jesus? And us Christians, do we really get this? Do we really get the implication of what the gospel means for this world and for its people? Was it William Chalmers Burns who occupied this pulpit while, um, I got that right, while, while McChain was away? William Chalmers Burns would often walk through the streets of Dundee or the streets of Edinburgh and would just have to stop. He would be so overwhelmed with emotion that he couldn't just walk through a crowded street. Why? Because his understanding was that so many of these people that he was just brushing shoulders with were lost. And he was so overwhelmed with their lostness that he couldn't just proceed along a city street unmoved. But I can. I can go throughout each day almost unaware of the eternal consequences and the eternal destinies for those who don't know Jesus. Why is that? Because we really don't grasp the gospel in its implication. We really don't grasp the gospel in its implication for us in terms of the lives that we are to live, nor do we truly grasp the gospel in its implications for those who do not believe and therefore will not live. They will not live this eternal life or this abundant life. And the consequences are clear for the unbeliever, but then for the believer. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. There is a rationale to rejecting the gospel, and the rationale is this. I prefer my life my way. But you see, we, don't, we have so many people today who don't know the gospel and therefore who are living in complete darkness. At the end of the day, if you present the gospel to somebody in word and in deed, and they say, thank you, but no thank you, at least they've had the option, at least they've been presented with the alternatives. But so many people in Dundee and so many people in Edinburgh don't know the other way. They don't know there's another option. They don't know there is good news. But there is a genuine rationale that when people come in contact with the gospel and say no, they do so rationally. It might not be, um, or reasonably, it might not be rational, but at least it's reasonable in the sense that they say, well, look, I prefer darkness instead of light. I prefer my way instead of your way. At least in that situation, they've been presented with the alternative. But where we come in is verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But 
whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So the gospel is expressed and the gospel is applied. And it's applied in these stark terms of light and darkness, just like it's applied in the terms of life and death, salvation and condemnation. So for those of us who have received life, for those of us who will not perish, for those of us who will enjoy eternity with God, our lives need to be characterized by these words in verse 21. They need to be characterized by light that we are now living in the light. We are now living in the light of God's word, in the light of God's truth, that we are living in a new relationship so that it becomes obvious that we believe the gospel. You shouldn't have to tell somebody that you're a Christian. Well, you, I mean, it's a good thing to say that you're a Christian, but it should be obvious. Why? We have a different standard. We have a different motivation. We have a different desire. We have a different goal. We have a different motivation. Everything about us is different because of our relationship with Jesus. The gospel message is simple, but the impact of the gospel is profound. So for each one of us who has said yes to Jesus, this should be the testimony of our lives. We live by the truth. We come into the light. And therefore it becomes plain that whatever we do, however we live, whatever we accomplish, that all that we are and all that we do is a result of God. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. God gets the credit. God gets the praise. He gets all the glory because of what he has done in my life and in your life. So as we present the gospel message in word, and as we present the gospel message in deed, we need to be a people of integrity. We have to say it, and we have to show it. There's no room for hypocrisy here. There's no room for saying it and not showing it. There's no room for saying it and not doing it. The gospel message is simple and clear and profound and powerful. It's a message that you and I must come to terms with personally and in individually. But it's a message that must shape all that we do collectively and corporately. Does this, does this church revolve around the gospel? Does every aspect of its work revolve around this passage? Does everything that we say and everything that we do focus upon our great desire to make Jesus known? Our great desire to introduce those who don't know him that there is a message of salvation that is found in one place and in one person? And are we, by the grace of God, through the gift of God, living now lives that are filled with light, lives that are filled with life, life lives that are overflowing with love and with joy and with good news? The Bible in miniature, the gospel of Jesus, for God so loved the world. Have you responded to this invitation? And have you made this invitation known to others? There is no other way. There is no other life. There is no other love. And there is no other gospel. May God bless his word to each of our hearts. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. 
That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.